we put a landing page or a website together. We photoshopped a picture of what we thought a nature box could look like. And we basically decided to start driving Facebook ads. And the landing page also was hooked up to PayPal. So if you wanted to, you could PayPal us money. It was a very sketchy setup. But lo and behold, we had 100 people sign up and pay for their first nature box. The problem was we didn't have a nature box, right? The only thing we had was this photoshopped picture. Welcome to Babson Built, where we interview Babson founders and entrepreneurs, people who have tried, failed, and tried again. They're the change makers, the disruptors, the hustlers, and the builders. These are their stories. This week on Babson Built, we have Gotham Gupta. Gotham has had a very interesting journey. He completed his undergrad from Babson in 2007 with a degree in business management and worked for General Catalyst, where he sourced and closed five investments for the firm. He then went on to co-found his company, NatureBox, a direct-to-consumer food company, which we hope to hear a lot about on this episode. Gotham was also recognized as one of Inc. Magazine's 2015 30 Under 30 Best and Brightest Entrepreneurs. He's now a partner with newly launched M13 Ventures, where he invests in consumer technology companies. I'm Vaidehi Tembaker. I'm glad to have you here today, Gotham. Thanks for having me. Great. So I think we can get right to it. So um, since you're here, I just want to start by hearing a little more about your journey. How did you get from Babson to where you are today? Yeah, it very much, my, my journey very much started at Babson and is intertwined with the experiences that I had at Babson. And so actually the first job that I had coming out of Babson was at General Catalyst, which is a large venture capital firm. I ended up actually getting that job because of Babson. So when I was a sophomore at Babson, I was very involved in the entrepreneurship club and Ended up meeting some of the partners at General Catalyst through the Entrepreneurship Club. And that first meeting turned into an internship, which then turned into a full-time job. And so, you know, the first position that I ever had really was because of the opportunities and network that Babson enabled. I ended up spending eight years working at General Catalyst, investing in consumer tech and software businesses. And then really had the itch to go start my own company. And at that point, I actually called my friend from Babson, Ken Chen, who had graduated along with me from the undergrad program. And we actually formulated the idea for NatureBox. And we basically spent the next six and a half, seven years building uh, NatureBox, which is still running today. And then about a year ago, decided to, to leave the company and kind of go back to my roots in venture capital. That's um, that's a great story. And um, I know we want to talk about nature books, but I'll just um, hold that thought for a moment. You mentioned at Babson, you were part of the entrepreneurship club. So did that mean you always knew you wanted to become an entrepreneur and start your own thing? Or was that kind of something that just happened on the way as you saw an opportunity? I had always been excited about the potential to be an entrepreneur ever since a very young age. Business was part of a dining room or dinner table discussion. And so even the decision to go to Babson was very much driven by the desire to be an entrepreneur at some point. Honestly, when I graduated from Babson, I thought I would spend a couple years at General Catalyst learning the venture capital industry 
and learning from great entrepreneurs and then start my own company. <laughs> you know, uh, in, uh, maybe that was naive in hindsight. Uh, I, I ended up spending eight years at General Catalyst. Um, so, so it wasn't just a couple, um, but it was because the work was so much fun and I felt like I was learning so much. But even when I made the decision to go to the venture capital side of the world, it was with the thinking that eventually I would end up being a founder. Right. And um, you co-founded NatureBots in 2012. So um, can you tell us a little more about what NatureBots is and what really inspired you to begin this venture in particular? Definitely. So Ken and I started NatureBox really because of our personal passions and interest for food. And I'll, I'll kind of focus on, on my side of the story, which is, you know, up until going off to college, I really struggled with obesity and had very, very bad eating habits, but luckily learned about nutrition and I was able to lose 70 pounds in six months through diet and exercise. And that experience made me very passionate about why do consumers eat the way that we eat, how important nutrition and diet are. And so I was always excited by this concept of, could you create a brand that helps consumers eat more healthy foods, uh, learn more about the good things that you could put in your body, the bad things. And so for me, the, the interest in starting a company like NatureBox was really centered around that journey in childhood and, you know, kind of the struggle of weight gain and then the sort of uh, experience I had around weight loss. And so that was the, the driving factor for me was, was really trying to create a difference in the way that consumers all across the country eat and, and their relationship with food. That's interesting. And it's great that you brought up your co-founder, Ken. Um, I wanted to understand how that relationship kind of started. Like, how did you realize Ken is the person that you wanted to kind of start NatureBox with? Well, over the years, even when I was at General Catalyst and Ken had started his own company, we would always call each other and talk about ideas. And we always, I think, found it very easy to brainstorm with one another about different entrepreneurial ideas. And if there was a company that I was looking at investing in a general catalyst, or if there was some business issue that he was having in his company, we would just kind of use each other as a sounding board. And so it was very much a natural partnership from that perspective. And then the other thing I would say was we really had the view that the world of not just food, but how you build a consumer brand was changing because of technology. And so the view, the philosophy that we had was that, you know, if you think about today or even five or 10 years from now, the way that consumers become aware of brands, the way consumers buy brands, the way that, you know, they uh, share their experience with certain brands, it's all changed because of technology, right? Social media has made it uh, so much, you know, sort of easier to share the experience that you've had. Digital advertising channels have cropped up, making it easier for brands to reach consumers. And then even e-commerce technology has just made it easier to sell directly to, to those consumers. And so we very much believe that the world of consumer brand was going to change quite a bit. And, and so we're excited about sort of doing something together, given that shared belief and that shared passion for the food industry. Right. 
And um, that's a good segue into my next question. So I wanted to ask if I am a customer wanting to buy NatureBox products, do I only find them online or is there any other places that I could find your products? Yeah. So today uh, you can buy NatureBox products online. You can buy, uh, we have a part of the business that sells to offices. Uh, So if you're a small to medium sized office, you can provide uh, snacks to your employees. And then we also sell into select uh, national retailers, uh, including places like Costco. And so you can find the NatureBox brand in a variety of different places. And that was very intentional. It took us a long time to get there, but it was very intentional to build a multi-channel brand from day one. From day one, we had the belief that ultimately the asset that you build of value is the brand. And so we had to create a unique product We had to own the relationship with the customer. And we felt like if we did those things, not only would a customer buy our product at naturebox.com, but they would be willing to buy our product in the places that they're already shopping for, for snack food. And so it was very intentional from day one that eventually the brand would live in multiple places and be both online and offline. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And um, I think as you talk about day one, I also read about NatureBox in its early days, where you and your co-founder Ken had a bunch of new signups that you were struggling to fulfill. Um, You actually ended up in Costco buying snacks to fulfill the orders. So having excess unexpected demand is a really good problem to have, but not when there's no plan, right? So um, what were you feeling at that point? What were your thoughts and how did you kind of decide you were going to fulfill the orders going to Costco? Yeah, well, let me back up maybe just a little bit and give some context for why we had this demand that we couldn't satisfy. And, you know, really the story is, you know, Ken and I came up with this idea for NatureBox. Neither of us had worked in the food industry before. And so we felt like we needed to find a way to test this concept. And so we spent an afternoon, we put a landing page or a website together, and then we photoshopped a picture of what we thought a NatureBox could look like. And, you know, we basically decided to start driving Facebook ads to that nature, that landing page. And the landing page also was hooked up to PayPal. So if you wanted to, you could PayPal us money. It was a very sketchy setup. Uh, Honestly, I don't think I would have purchased from that landing page. But lo and behold, after that weekend of putting the landing page together and then driving some traffic to that page, we had 100 people sign up and pay for their first nature box. But as you mentioned, the problem was we didn't have a nature box, right? The only thing we had was this Photoshopped picture. And so we had a real problem. And uh, the feeling to get to your question, the feeling was real anxiety. We were very nervous, unsure about what to do. Should we send them? Should we try to put something together to send these customers? Or you know, should we just refund their money? We ended up deciding to put a box together. And the reason for that is we felt like, hey, if we're going to go start this company, we should actually experience and understand what the supply chain looks like and start getting feedback from customers on what products they like and what they don't like. The challenge was, again, we didn't know where to start. And so we thought about it for a little while and we said, look, where can we buy enough food product 
to send to 100 people, 100 customers. And the only answer we could come up with was Costco. So we went to Costco, we filled up two shopping carts full of Kirkland branded snacks. We came back to my apartment, repackaged them into NatureBox branded bags. By that point, we had figured out how to get our bags, you know, kind of to stickers to put on the bags that said NatureBox. And that was the first box that we shipped out. It was basically product that you could buy at Costco, probably for much cheaper, packed out of our apartment. But I think the interesting thing about that is we learned a lot doing that test and we got really valuable feedback from the customers who stayed, the customers who decided not to stay. Interestingly, most of the customers actually did stay. Uh, only a few people canceled, uh, you know, for the following month. So uh, we learned a lot. It was a great process. I love that story. It really highlights, um, you know, your entrepreneurial spirit, I think. And um, so just to follow up on that, how long were you actually putting boxes together, you know, buying products from Costco? And when did you realize it was the right time to kind of turn to a private label? Yeah. So the funny thing here is, you know, the value proposition of NatureBox was that we would send you new snacks every month. And so by the second or third month, we were running out of snacks at Costco, right? Because as you know, Costco doesn't change their assortment all that often. And so we had to start thinking about where can we get other snacks? And we thought about it for a little while. And I said, well, you know, the Whole Foods has a bulk section. And I wonder if we can go and just fill up granola and trail mix and stuff like that at Whole Foods. And so I went to Whole Foods one day and I started filling up these plastic bags of bulk foods. And there was an employee standing in the aisle and he said, hey, how much granola do you need? Because I think he could see that I was packing like, you know, multiple bags of this stuff. And I said, well, you know, I'd love to buy 10 or 15 pounds. And he said, okay, well, I have a case in the back. It's 25 pounds, but I have a case. I can give it to you. And I actually thought for a second, I could not fathom that Whole Foods would actually sell you a case of this product. I thought that this employee was taking pity on me and, you know, was mercifully letting me, you know, sort of like maybe do this underhanded deal where I could pay for some case that he wasn't allowed to sell, but that would kind of save me all this time from packing up the these bags of granola. And so we ended up, uh, you know, surviving for a few more months, buying stuff at Costco, buying stuff from this gentleman at Whole Foods, uh, you know, which, by the way, is actually totally legal. And Whole Foods will sell you cases of that bulk product. And then, you know, we got very lucky. We went to a trade show where we met a bunch of manufacturers, snack manufacturers, and we basically started making relationships with several of those manufacturers to create the first line of NatureBox products. And so it, it took us a few months. It was probably four or five months in total where we were buying products from Costco, Whole Foods, really anywhere that we could buy bulk products. Uh, and then by the fifth or sixth month, we had some relationships with manufacturers that were starting to come to fruition. Right. 
And did you have any companies that stood out as competition at that point? And how was Naturebox um, different to the existing companies at that point? At that point, there were some competitors that were basically sending sample boxes. So think of a birch box experience around snacking. So you could sign up and get a handful of different brands and samples um, sent to your home. And, and that was, those were the competitors. There were a few companies, I don't even recall the names of those, but the way that we differentiated is it was all our brand. From day one, it was all our brand. And we tried to really find in, in the first few months, obviously the product was coming from, you know, Costco and Whole Foods. So it wasn't that unique or differentiated, but the first year and several years, the goal was really to try to find the most unique and create the most unique differentiated snack product that you couldn't just find in your neighborhood grocery store. And so that was really the way that we differentiated is that we had a, a lot more control over the customer experience because it was all our brand, which meant that we felt like we could provide a better price to value proposition to the consumer. We could provide a more unique product offering. Um, that That's kind of how we thought about um, sort of the competitive differentiation at that point. So let's um, shift gears a little. Um, you said, of course, you had a co-founder, Ken. And as we all know, picking the right team and the right co-founder is extremely important. So what would your advice be in finding the right co-founder or finding the right team to help your company grow? I think team is probably a, a, the, the most important part of the startup journey. And, and I would say this. I think it's far more important to hire, uh, whether it's a co-founder or you know your uh, employees that you're hiring. I think it's much more important to look for sort of values fit and aptitude, so their ability and sort of the attitude that they come into to work with, than it is to look for the experience or you know specific sort of skill sets. I think at the end of the day, a startup journey, you have to learn very quickly and you have to learn on your feet, right? Uh, because the business is changing every single day. And so I'm less worried about finding someone who has the skill set to do what needs to get done, but much more concerned about values alignment, attitude, because there's going to be some really tough days and, you know, sort of everyone in a startup will need to be self-motivated. And then uh, I would say aptitude, their, their ability to learn and grow and grow faster than the company, right? Which is effectively as a, at a startup, what you're trying to do is you're trying to outgrow your capability faster than the company grows. So, so, you know, that's what I would say is I, I think it's incredibly important. Those are the elements that I would be looking for. That makes a lot of sense. And um, when you talk about this, I want to understand if there was any moments or a time that you remember where you really had to motivate the team. Maybe the company was going through a tough time and it was really important to kind of motivate your team. And uh, how did you do that? Yeah, I think, um, look, I tend to be more introverted and maybe a little more shy than your typical caricature of a CEO. And so uh -huh. I, I would say that I've always thought about the job of the CEO and really thought about how you motivate and create internal morale as 
through the lens of transparency and communication. And so the, the way that I've thought about it is if you hire smart people who have positive intent, believe in the mission of the company, all you have to do, maybe I shouldn't say all you have to do, but the primary job is to treat them with a huge amount of transparency so that they know what's going well in the business, what isn't going well, and then over communicate, right? And I think that if you do those two things, most people will understand that not every day is going to be without challenges. Uh, you know, there, there are going to be setbacks and there are going to be the tough days. But I think most people will understand that even in the face of that adversity, the, the mission alignment uh, is there and that's driving them forward. And they have a clear understanding of where they can impact the organization. And so that's how I've always thought about it is, you know, I, I've never looked at it through the lens of how do you motivate people, but more, how do you treat employees as owners and rely on them to do what an owner would do, which is, you know, that you're, you're not sugarcoating the bad, but really uh, giving them the, empowering them to uh, fix the problems in the business when they do arise. Right. I totally agree. I think transparency is very important. So Naturebox was your baby. You grew it from nothing to a very successful company. What made you realize that it was time to say goodbye and kind of move in a different direction? So I had been CEO for six and a half years by 2018, and we had gone through some real ups and downs in the prior, you know, kind of 12 to 18 months we finally got the business to cash flow positive and I was just spent. I, I felt like I'd put every ounce of energy I had into the business. And so I was actually relieved to, you know, kind of hire a new CEO and move on and transition away from the company. I would say this, I think it's an important thing for founders to understand as well is that the company deserves a CEO who has all the energy in the world to go run after the hard problems and, you know, to, to continue to pour everything that they have into the business. And I got to a point where I was just too emotionally drained to, to be that CEO. You know, I, I spoke to a, a number of my kind of mentors at that point in time, um, because I had a lot of angst about, you know, disappointing people and, and leaving the company. Uh, I felt like I had made a commitment and, and I, I didn't feel good about leaving. Um, but I spoke to many of my mentors at the time. And I think the, the view that I, I came to realize was that the CEO founder transition is, is a part of the life of you know, many companies and isn't necessarily something to be ashamed of or, um, you know, to be disappointed about, you know, at the end of the day, like I said, I think the company deserves the most, the best CEO that, that it can possibly afford. And if the founder gets to a point where they're just not as energetic or not as passionate as they once were, I think it's on, it's the duty of the founder to make that transition happen. And, and so I really came to believe that it was part of the natural course of company building and that it was the right time for me to move on. 
Right. I think that's a really interesting way to look at it. And I think a lot of us sometimes overlook, you know, that option, even if because we believe it's only our duty to kind of keep running the startup. So that's a really interesting angle. Also, um, so it's interesting because you've been a successful entrepreneur before you moved to the VC world. So I'd love to know your experience as an entrepreneur and CEO and how that kind of shaped your perspective as an investor as well now. I think I have a lot more empathy for how hard it is to build a company. And I think I have a lot more um, sort of appreciation for some of the things that typical VCs don't really understand uh, about company building. And I'll give you a couple examples of that. But, you know, we had talked about just how important transparency and communication are. I think I have just a lot more appreciation for CEOs that are good people managers and that understand how important transparency and communication are, having gone through the experience of building a company myself. Uh, and then the second one is, and, and this one's probably you know very tangible for folks, but you know a lot of VCs don't actually spend a whole lot of time understanding the goals of the companies that they're working with and and really putting into place a good goal setting system. And having been an operator now, I think I have just a great amount of respect for companies where goal setting is a native language. And you just see how it's one thing to have a clear idea in your mind about where you want to take the company. And it's an entirely different thing to actually manage to that destination. And I think I now appreciate how difficult it is to actually not just have that vision, but compel the company towards that vision. So, okay. So I think I'd like to just end by asking one last question. Um, If there was one piece of advice that you could give to some of our aspiring entrepreneurs, what would it be? I think two, two thoughts. Uh, so I'll cheat and I'll give you two. Okay. Um, but the, the first one is going back to what we were talking about, about people. People are just so incredibly important. And, and so I think I really believe the first 10 people in a company, uh, whether you know they're, some of them are founders, employees, the first 10 set the culture. And I think you have to have an incredibly high bar for the people you bring into an organization. And my advice to an aspiring founder or CEO would be continue as much as possible, continue to try to increase the average. Uh, And what I mean by that is every new hire should be better than the last, right? And every person you bring into the organization, uh, especially those early hires, you should feel like how you know, how do I, how did I even get this person, right? Like, I can't even imagine that this person picked up the phone call, uh, let alone accepted the job offer, right? Um, and then I would say the second thing is just try to intimately understand and and know your customer. And it's not just from reading market research, but really try to talk to customers as much as possible, develop a level of empathy in your organization for the customer. And so you know, whether that means having people on the team respond to customer uh, service inquiries or you know, however you do it, just make sure that the customer is a huge part of, of what you do, not just in starting a company, but uh, making day-to-day operating decisions. 
Great. I think that's really great advice and I'm sure our listeners will benefit from it. So I think with this, we've come to the end of our episode. Um, thank you so much for joining us here today, Gotham. This has been absolutely great. Great. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Baps and Built. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please rate and review us since that really helps others discover the podcast. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Babson Eship and on Facebook at Babson Entrepreneurs. We're grateful to the Babson College student and alumni founders who participate in this podcast. These are their stories. Join us again for more Babson Builds.